Well, hey, uh, you guys have made it to the end. This is the last Answering the Tough Ones class. So I don't know what y'all consider yourselves, like graduates or what, but um, you should. We've, uh, we've covered some interesting topics. Just needed to be unplugged. So we've covered some interesting topics. Uh, we started off week one um, answering the question, um, is there truth and can we know it? <clears throat> Um, so if y'all were with us, then we had fun covering kind of the topic of epistemology. And then uh, Nika and Tyler Martin were with us to cover the compatibility of science and Christianity. And then uh, week three was that fire hydrant night um, of the reliability and veracity of Scripture. And then uh, we talked about the historicity of the resurrection, which is obviously central to everything. And then last week we covered um, if God is good, um, then why is there evil? Um, and if God is good, why is there evil? And why is there so much evil, the per- pervasiveness of evil as well? And then tonight um, we're going to cover the one kind of social issue of many that we couldn't choose from, <laughs> but uh, the one that, that uh, we felt like was... Um, um, appropriate for us to talk about, and that is, um, what is marriage, and should same-sex marriage uh, be permitted or um, a, a viable, allowable position? Um, so before we get to that, um, first of all, congratulations. Um, I think we are talking as an equipping team, like um, now that core classes are, there are six core classes, and we, we would like to, in some way, figure out a way to that if you complete all six of them that, you know, I don't know, you get something, um, which typically around here means uh, some kind of watermark T-shirt <laughs> or a Nalgene bottle or something like that, um, which I mean for some people is like, yeah, I mean, who doesn't want a Nalgene bottle um, until you have like 40 of them, and then it's like, well, whatever. Well, we are thinking through how, how do we celebrate uh, the people who have who've completed all of them, so um, we'll figure out a way, but um, appreciate you guys sticking with us all the way to the end. But uh, let me pray for our time, and we'll dive in. <clears throat> well, Father, thank you for um, who you are. Thank you that you've chosen not only to create us um, as relational beings who bear your image, but um, to give us purpose and meaning and to give us tasks um, to do that we might bear your image be image bearers, be rulers, subduers, um, those who fill the earth like you've called us to do. And I pray that tonight would be, um, just pray for uh, clarity of, of thought, clarity of, uh, of mind, speech, that um, what would be communicated tonight would be um, straight from you. I pray that you keep us from the enemy, keep us from um, the lies or any, any way that our um, thinking is um, different than yours. Give us the grace that we need um, to be loving, uh, gentle, and kind, um, and the courage we need to never stray an inch from the truth. Um, we love you and pray these things in the name of your Son, who's risen from the dead. Amen. <clears throat> okay. 
So this question, um, what is marriage? Should same-sex marriage be permitted? It, you know, it's interesting. Um, when you start thinking about the second question, um, the answer to the second question is really found in the first question. Um, so um, definitely we live in a, uh, we live in a culture um, that, well, frankly, legally has, has already gone here. Um, same-sex marriage is legal um, in this country. And uh, by a kind of sweeping judicial um, ruling that happened last summer, um, but it but it brought up a lot of. I mean, that ruling obviously was controversial, but um, it brought up a, a an interesting debate um, around the, the central issue of of asking this question about same sex marriage. Is this um, a viable position? Um, and and I think that a lot of people um, land obviously in different places in regard to that. Even Christians land in different places, which we'll talk about tonight. Um, but fundamentally, in order to, to answer the second question, we first have to get on the same page about the first question, which is where, which is primarily the reason that people land in so many different places is their view of marriage, uh, their definition of marriage is is drastically different from other other positions, and so um, that's where we're going to spend um, a good chunk of our time tonight. Is is what is marriage? Um, what um, not just. Um, what did God say that it is, but also uh, the, the implications of that and the foundation for a civil society, for the, the best thing for society, um, etc. So um, we'll, we'll start with this basic definition. And really, I, I, um, I like this definition because it, um, it really just pays attention. It's, it's more of someone who's paying attention to the natural order of things. Um, it's not even necessarily saying, hey, you know, uh, Genesis says this. Um, it's, it's simply a basic definition that uh, is paying attention to how things work in the world. And how things work in the world in the natural order of things is that a man and a woman come together as a husband and wife. So there's unity uh, together between the man and the woman. And one of their primary roles in marriage um, is to be a mother and a father um, to any children that their union produces, right? Um, So you have... um, no other place, no other place, no other relationship um, is, is can't, even can be. It's impossible to substitute any other relationship for this relationship right here. You cannot find all of the elements in this definition in any other human relationship, right? You cannot, it is impossible um, uh, for, for any other relationship to fulfill all of the requirements of this. And this is just the way things naturally work in the natural order of things. So I'm going to unpack this a little bit um, as we go. First of all, um, is that it's a man and a woman. Um, there, um, all throughout his, the history of mankind, um, this has been a universally accepted um, aspect of the definition of marriage, is that marriage is between one man and one woman. Now, typically, um, uh, proponents of the same-sex marriage position will, will tell you, like, well, marriage is has evolved, it's shifted, it's done all of the, which we'll cover some of that tonight. We'll actually cover all of it tonight as well. Um, but you need to understand, though, is that even in cultures where, uh, you know, men would attempt to marry um, other men or even, like, some of the Caesars in Rome attempted to marry boy, like the Caesar was attempting to marry a boy, um, the, the deviation of uh, the marriage relationship, those things were not seen as normative. They were seen as deviant, Right. By, by the broader culture, because primarily for um, 
uh, not just the, the roles of, of society, but, the, but the, the sheer fact that, you know, what, what can come of that relationship um, other than um, the fulfillment of, of sexual exploitation. So just paying attention to what, has, what have we believed, well, not just what have we believed, it doesn't matter what you believe, how have we functioned? How has, how has mankind functioned for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? And frankly, if, you, if you're an old earth person, for millions of years, right? Um, and the answer clearly is, is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Um, pr- prior to alternative uh, methods for conception, um, that the, the uh, uh, propagation of the human race is contingent on babies, and we need babies, <laughs> right? And so in order for babies to be born, you have to have, by, in the natural order, you have to have a man and a woman. Um, that's just... If I have to explain that to you, then we should, <laughs> we should talk about, you know, the birds and the bees or something, um, which right now I'm, I'm hoping to hold off on that for another, you know, um, eight or nine years because my son's only two and a half, but um, we'll, <laughs> I'll get there with him, I promise. Um, the second part of the, of the definition is that um, that man and woman, they, they don't come together just for procreation purposes alone, Right? There is a unity, there's a union between the man and the woman, whereby that man and woman become a husband and wife. Right? This does a couple of different things. One, it provides, um, and, that, and that them coming together as a husband and wife um, uh, provides uh, a, really a lot of protections, primarily more for the woman than the man um, in the history of mankind. One, it provides public accountability for sexual behavior. So when you get married and say, I do, you know, I mean, now we have these you know, rings um, that we wear on our fingers, but um, other cultures may have had other symbols to show that this person is married. And so it provided accountability that, hey, that person's taken by that person. And so um, it, provide, it provided a, a fence, a barrier, a, a wall to say, hey, um, for the purposes of their unity and their relationship, and so we don't have sexual deviation and the exploitation of human beings, um, then you're going to stay in that relationship. And, and public community would hold people accountable for that, which is why for so long, really up until the last um, 80 years or so, um, even less than that, like 60, 70 years, um, um, has, has sexual deviation, sexually deviant behavior been so taboo because it's like, hey, you're, you're threatening the health of, our, of the human community here by um, your sexual ex- exploitation. Um, again, like, like I've already mentioned, uh, them coming together as a husband and a wife, it protects women from sexual predators. So obviously, you know, uh, men generally are um, much more sexual, s- sexually oriented um, beings than, than, than women. I mean, we, we um, again, I'm not talking about every single individual, but just generally, it's generally true that men are more interested in, um, uh, in the sexual act and women tend to be more interested in the deepening the relationship, right? Um, so, um, and, and for, for a long time, what would happen is, you know, if, if this was not in place, is that men would um, uh, sexually conquer a woman until he was satisfied with her or bored with her, and then dismiss her and move on to the next one. And that type of behavior threatened the viability of that human community. And so um, it um, protected women. It, it, it tied the male to a commitment to the, to the female to protect her um, and to provide for her, which prior to the Industrial Revolution, I mean, this was, uh, this was crucial for women <clears throat> um, to have a, not only a provider but also 
um, a protector because there were other men who were attempting to um, take over, conquer, <coughs> exploit, etc. Um, so that's the husband and wife aspect of marriage. Then lastly um, is that um, no other relationship um, uh, is able to produce um, the, uh, the reality of being called a father and a mother. So um, for, for this aspect of the relationship, gender, gender diversity is, is required. It's not optional. Um, so um, that provides um, in, in that relationship the, the safety and security um, for a child to, uh, uh, to grow up in an environment that's complementarian. So there are aspects about, about uh, again, I'm generally speaking, but there, there are facets of manhood um, that, that women cannot um, pass along to their children. There are aspects of womanhood that men cannot pass on to their children. Um, children, um, ultimately, in this, this last point, the, the children have a natural right to have a father and a mother. Um, that's, uh, I mean, primarily because they do have a father and a mother, even if the father is a sperm donor or the mother is a surrogate, right? The, the, ch- the child still has a father and mother and has an innate natural right to have um, to have that. In fact, there's been quite a bit written about this since the, um, even prior to the uh, Supreme Court ruling, by children who grew up, who have grown up in same-sex uh, uh, houses who love their mothers and their fathers, um, but also have uh, kind of this inner angst at the fact that they, they were not able to grow up in an environment that nurtured this complementarian um, view um, and, and gave them the advantages of having um, both a father and a mother and all of the things that is necessary for human development that comes out of that. Okay, you'll notice that I've been talking now for about 10 minutes um, and have gone through a definition of marriage and haven't talked about God or the Bible at all, right? So it's interesting that um, a lot of times people can look at um, one of the same-sex you know, caricature, same-sex marriage proponents caricature of of people who are opponents to same-sex marriage, um, <clears throat> actually, uh, you know, they, they kind of paint this picture of y'all are right-wing fundamentalist re- religious zealots, you know, who are out to get us <laughs> kind of thing. And, and I think you can come to the table and present very cogent um, arguments based on just the natural order of things that says, actually, no, I think we have good reason to believe that this type of relationship should be protected and guarded and frankly, um, cannot be replaced by anything else. It's impossible. Um, and so, now, I'm going to talk a lot about what the Bible says because we're Christian, and I want to equip you um, with the tools that you need to represent uh, the Christian position accurately. But all I'm making the point is, is, is just, hey, you know, it's not like if someone's talking about this that you, that you have to immediately go to, oh, the Bible says, right? You don't have to do that. Um, in fact, you know, a lot of times if I'm having conversations with people about this and they don't know me, that's a card I hold close to my chest. I'm not going to come right out and be like, hey, I'm Christian, you know, and I want to represent a Christian position on this to you. Um, a lot of times I'm like, hey, that's going to build a wall that's going to deflect um, any kind of productive conversation. So I'm going to hold that card close to my chest. Now, I'll, I'll give Christian-type responses, but I'm not going to explicitly say that um, until the time is until the time is appropriate, right? So just remember that um, as you're going through this. Um, however, I, I am Christian. <laughs> I believe that God has said something about this, and so I do think it's appropriate um, um, to go through that. 
as well. Um, to do that, um, we really have to start at the beginning. And so when you look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, you see something really interesting going on um, where, where God is creating the world. He's, he's, he's creating the universe, you know, the, um, uh, the stars, and the, you, know, you see the, the, create, the creation happen there in Genesis chapter 1. Um, and then he's creating um, the, the, the world, and the world is, is uh, you know, uh, full of water. And the Spirit of God was, was um, hovering or moving over the surface of, of the waters. And, and God said, let there be light, and, you know, and, then, uh, and there was light. And, and, uh, and he says, let there be land, and then land comes up and it separate, separates the water from the waters. Um, and we have land. And then out of then he goes on and creates vegetation and animal, plant life, um, fish, all that jazz. And then at the, uh, and then he says, uh, and then he creates, he says, let us, let us make man um, in our image, um, in, in our likeness, so that they may. So what's fascinating to me is a lot of times we just cursory look over this, but I think uh, um, issues like same-sex marriage force us back to the text to say, what's, what is God saying here? I mean, a lot of times we just read over this like, oh, yeah, that's a creation story, cool, great, all right, move on. But a, a closer examination, just a cursory examination, and then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they, right? That, that's, those are terms of purpose, God, God, is, God, is telling, God is telling us why he has created us, not just that he did create us. He's given us a job. He's given us a purpose, an innate purpose that's directly tied to our humanity, right? Um, and so he says, so that they may rule over the fish <laughs> in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and... and um, all the wild animals over the, crea- over the uh, creatures that move along on the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, uh, which is an interesting um, uh, fact that Moses here is using um, the, the plural personal pronoun, right? That, that he created them, male and female, he created them. So there's something about, which is why I've said already the complementarian aspect, there is something about our maleness and our femaleness that when combined under the they, (laughs) that that is under God's created order, the fullness of the expression of the image of God. In other words, we express the image of God most fully together, male and female. Now, that doesn't mean that individuals directly don't uh, uh, image God in, in, in the way that they only can. They absolutely can. But what I, I think what we're seeing here is that under God's created order, um, it is our togetherness that fully images God to the world. Um, and, and, and so God creates them in his image, and that they are imaging him to the world as his underrulers, the people that he's put in charge of the world. And God blessed them and said to them, all right, so again, I think this is really important. <laughs> he creates them and then he tells them something. That's, we should probably pay attention to that, right? Um, what does God want us to do? And he says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the, and the birds of the sky over every living creature that moves on the ground, right? So he's given us a job to do. He's created us in his image and as his... And, as, and in our maleness and femaleness complementing one another, together we 
um, f- most fully image um, God to the world. We're, we we become the we've we um, f- are fully representing Him the way that He's created us to. Um, but but He's given us purpose. He's He told He told us to fill the earth. Right. Um, that means He said one of your primary functions that I want you to do as rulers in the world is to populate my world that I've created for you. Right. That is that is an 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 innate, intrinsic <laughs> um, to, to our humanity is, is our ability to procreate. And God said, look, I could have made, uh, you know, how many people on the earth now? Like seven, eight billion, something like that, right? He said, I could have made seven billion people, but the way I've chosen to fill the earth was to procreate through you. So get busy, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, it's, that's what I want you to do. This uh, uh, sexuality is a good thing. God created it. He honors it. He blesses it. Um, and he also says, and out of that blessing that I have given you is going to come the fruit of the womb. Um, in other words, you, as you come together as image bearers, then out of your image bearing of me, guess what's going to happen? There are going to become more image bearers. Right? Um, so he told us to fill the earth. Um, and again, like we've said, the only relationship where that's even possible is the complementary relationship between a man and a woman. He told us to subdue it, um, to rule over it. Um, he's, he has given us enormous power um, to, uh, to manipulate elements, to, to, make a, to make a space that's pleasing to him, that honors him, right? But then he also says that it's not good for man to be alone. And so he says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, and then 21 and 22, the Lord God said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. Um, and he goes on and, and says, uh, he's, he looked over the, the birds and the animals and says, and then he says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Right. So what the Lord says then is, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, it's not good for you to be alone. Now, I don't think, because a lot of times you'll hear this argument from the same-sex uh, position, same-sex marriage proponent position, where they're like, hey, um, in fact, uh, Matthew Vines, who wrote... Um, a book on uh, the viability of same-sex uh, marriage um, out of the text of Genesis, his argument is um, that is talking, basically saying that the, in, the incompleteness of Adam in Genesis 2 can either be filled by a woman or a man, right? And, and in that sense, I think Vines' uh, interpretation of, of it's not good for man to be alone is that he's, he's uh, um, thinking of that in terms of loneliness, Right? Um, it's, it's, so it's like Adam was in a garden with a bunch of animals and birds and fish and, and, and God, <laughs> and Adam is alone, right? No, Adam is not alone. Um, and, uh, or, I mean, he's alone in the sense that he's the only uh, human, but he's not lonely. It's not like he's sitting around going, man, this is so boring, right? No, he's in perfect relationship with Yahweh. Like, I promise, he is not lonely, right? Um, he's, he's ruling over, he's naming the animals, right? Um, he's not lonely, um, and, and so I think it's instructive for us, too, um, when it talks about that, that Yahweh wants to create for Adam a helper that's suitable for him, then what he's saying is it's not good for you to be alone in the task that I've given you to do. 
And the task that I've given you to do is to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. And you can't do that alone. You need a helper that's suitable for you. And so what he does is he creates a helper that's suitable for Adam so that um, they together, like I said, can, in a complementary way, um, image God and in their act of coming together in union as, as husband and wife um, to, to celebrate the unity of, of that image-bearing, that that act um, also produces more image-bearers so that, um, so that Yahweh creates this. The Hebrew word is etzer. It's this helper. It's a completer. It's, it's, it's a, the, the word has the sense of someone who's coming alongside of someone to fulfill in them what was lacking, Right? Um, it, it doesn't have the idea of like a, a companion only, like, oh, you're lonely, I'll come be your friend. <laughs> you know? No, it, it, has a, it has a purpose to it. It has a, um, you're, you're called to complete this, and you're lacking in that, so I'm going to help you complete what God has created you to do. Um, so gender diversity is necessary to complete God's design. I've already um, said that. Um, we're complementary image bearers. I've talked about that as well, right? So what did Jesus say about marriage? So you have, that's the created order. I feel like I've done an okay job establishing that from Genesis 1 and 2. Um, and so you have the history of Israel, and then Jesus shows up. And what does Jesus do? So in Matthew 19, 3 to 6, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him, and they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Um, and, and Jesus replied, Haven't you read? That at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female. Um, he, and, and then he said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Again, this, this idea of, of unity, um, unity and diversity, just like the Godhead, right? That, we, that together we image um, God. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. What you see Jesus do, even though he's responding to a different question, he was responding to a question about divorce. But what you see Jesus do is he explicitly reaffirms the created order of Genesis 1 and 2, right? And and so what we have here is is a very clear statement from Jesus that's reasserting that, look, the Father, when he created, well, if he was going to, Jesus was adding to this, I think it's implied, but when the Father created through Jesus, through, if if, if he's talking, then he's saying through me, um, by the power of the Spirit, then, then uh, what Jesus is doing is he's saying, hey, um, he created them for that purpose. Um, and in order to fulfill that purpose, he made them male and female. <clears throat> so typically, a lot of times you'll hear um, uh, uh, one of the other arguments from the, the same-sex proponent position um, is, is that, well, marriage has been, you know, they'll look, at, they'll look at various aspects of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, and they'll be like, see, those guys, they had multiple wives, or these guys, you know, ran roughshod over here and were doing all kinds of deviant things. So the Bible, teach, the Bible doesn't teach anything about marriage. It teaches all kinds of things about marriage. And, and uh, I don't know if you guys have heard that before. I definitely have. It's one of the primary arguments that, that gets used a lot of times in kind of the pop culture war language um, that goes on around this. But the, um, uh, what, the mistake that's being made there, the fundamental hermeneutical mistake, is this idea that, um, that there's no difference between what the Bible is describing and what the, di- what the Bible is prescribing. So there, there is a fundamental difference between something that's, pr- uh, that's descriptive. In other words, the Bible is simply just, Scripture is just simply reporting this is what happened, right? 
um, versus something that Scripture is prescribing, which is where the Lord says, hey, thus saith the Lord, you need to do this, <laughs> right? Um, so they're, they're uh, typically also in the Old Testament, a lot of what you get in the Old Testament, especially in the, the, the genre of, of uh, historical narrative, is, is you get a lot of descriptive language. This happened. This happened. This guy did this. That woman did this. These people did this. Um, and, and then you have other genres of literature that are much more prescriptive, and, and like I would call you know, the letters of Paul, the epistles, are very prescriptive in nature. That doesn't mean it doesn't have any descriptive language in it. Both of the languages is used interchangeably, but you just have, as an exegete or as, some, as an interpreter of Scripture, you have to pay attention to, all right, what is, what is Scripture teaching right now? Is it teaching me um, about what something that's, it's just describing something that happened, or is it teaching me how to live, right? And there's, that's a big difference, right? So um, uh, uh, just a couple of examples, like um, Abraham and the tale of two sons, right? Abraham, um, his wife uh, Sarah is, is barren, right? She cannot have children. And so <clears throat> even though the created order was, hey, um, you and your wife become one flesh, be, um, and I think this is uh, kind of going back into my argument about how central childbearing was um, in the ancient world was Sarah was like, hey, I can't have children, but that's so integral to, um, to my purpose that um, I'm going to take, I'm not going to trust God. In fact, she laughed, right? She laughed when, uh, when God shows up and promises. But she says, I'm not going to trust God. I'm going to give you my Egyptian servant that I picked up along the way, and you sleep with her, and maybe she'll have a child for you that way. Well, what do you think Abraham said? You know, his wife is coming to him like pushing this. You know, I don't know what she looked like, but let's just say she's a beautiful young servant girl, right? And his wife is like, "Go sleep with this girl." You know, I mean, well, Abraham does probably what a lot of men would do, and he's like, "Okay." Um, so he does, and guess who's born? Ishmael, right? Um, Adam or Adam, um, Abraham's firstborn son, but not by his wife. And not by the woman through whom the covenant promise was, was, was uh, covenanted by Yahweh with Abraham, where, where he said, uh, this, your, the, the seed of my covenant will pass through your wife Sarah. So Abraham's wife Sarah takes things, matters into her own hands. Abraham plays along with that. That is a descriptive action. There, nowhere in the text does it say that Yahweh blesses off on this or that he smiles on it or says, yeah, that's a good idea. In fact, what's the direct result of Ishmael being born? Yeah, massive conflict. Is that conflict still going on today? Yes. Right? The descendants of Ishmael are the Arabs. Right? The, the descendants of Isaac are the Jews. And they hate each other. Right? So <clears throat> I don't think there's, there's nothing about that that's like, oh, yeah, God thought that was a good idea. <laughs> you know? So the tale of two sons. The other one um, that, that's really obvious is David and Solomon, right? Um, David um, definitely had women problems. Um, you know, uh, he, he marries, he actually marries uh, Saul's daughter first, but doesn't really get along with her. Marries multiple other women, including Bathsheba and Abigail and, and a couple other women. Has, has children, I think, by all of them. Um, and then what happens with all of David's children that, happen from, that, that are born from all of these women? They rise up against him and have this massive civil war, right? Um, that, that basically leaves you know, Solomon um, the king because his other sons are dead or in, to- or in hiding. 
Solomon becomes the king, and then Solomon has, well, you guys know the story. He has tons of wives. And, and Deuteronomy, which was written, um, you know, Solomon definitely had Deuteronomy while he was alive, makes it really clear in chapter 17, the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back to that way again. Don't go to Egypt again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. This is really clear instruction for the king, right? Yahweh is telling the king, if you want it to go well with you, if you want to go my way, um, stick with your wife, <laughs> right? Don't take multiple women. It will not go well with you, right? Well, what does Solomon do? He takes multiple women and does not go well, um, the, the nation becomes fractured, weakens, Israel ceases to exist, which opens the door for the Babylonians to come down, and they sack Judah and carry them off into exile. And Israel just, I mean, the whole nation just ceased basically to exist. Um, these are not good things, right? So there, there is a difference, as, as you'll see, when people say, well, so-and-so was married to this and had multiple wives, and this guy, you know, uh, had sex with a slave girl and all of these things that in our culture are like, oh, what, what? Um, just remember the difference between something that's descriptive and prescriptive, okay? All right, well, y'all pull your sheet out that uh, says a Christian response to homosexuality. <clears throat> We're going to camp out here for a few minutes, okay? So I think it's extremely important, um, first of all, uh, so the question here, the challenge is, is, is something you'll, you've heard, I, I guarantee you've heard. Um, why, is it, why is it wrong? Why is it wrong for two same-sex adults to live, a con, live in a consensual, they're consenting adults, they love one another, they're committed. Um, why is this wrong? Why would the Bible say that, 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 that that's wrong? Um, and so I think the response is definitely nuanced, and I tried to I didn't, I didn't want to just like, you know, drop a hammer on this because I do think the very first thing you need to think about when you're engaging people or asking this question is you have to recognize that this is an extremely complex issue, right? This is not black and white, just here's the truth, believe it, right? Um, because you have to understand too, um, typically the people who are living in this type of lifestyle or are proponents of it have been enculturated to believe something um, and to view Scripture's uh, uh, stance on the issue as bigoted, discriminatory, hateful, right? Um, these are all of the emotional terms that are connected with, with, with God saying, this is what I'm saying about this issue. And so you just have to realize, like, um, you know, uh, a, a lot of, um, like, I, like I said there in the first point, a lot of people asking the questions not only have heard that, but have also been conditioned by our culture to identify themselves by their sexuality. So this is something that's intensely personal. Right? You're not talking about their neighbor down the street or, or um, someone's dog, right? Um, although sometimes some people love their dog like, like it's a human, which that's a whole other deal. But, <clears throat> um, but these people have, it, it, you just need to understand this is always a pastoral issue. So your response always, always, always needs to be filled with, with grace and truth, right? Um, number two, empathy. Don't demonize homosexuality, which we've, I mean, like, I'll just read it. Christians have consistently treated people who struggle with homosexuality or people who are openly homosexual and don't even want to struggle with it. That's just the way they live their lives. We've, we've consistently uh, uh, 
uh, treated them as outcasts, um, as, as second-class type citizens. So we need to work hard because that, that stigma exists, not only for, uh, you know, between Christians toward homosexuals, but also the other way. I mean, it, a lot of times the homosexual community has a stigma toward Christians um, that, frankly, we've earned. Um, so we have to work really hard to overcome that and, and establish the fact that homosexuality is no different than any other sin um, and that Christians who struggle with homosexuality, just like we have a bunch of them here at Watermark, that's, we have a bunch of people here at Watermark who struggle with homosexuality, right? but they struggle with it. Right? They, they recognize that their identity is not found in their sexuality, but in Christ, right? Who's, who um, has given them a new nature and a new life, um, that they're not identified by their sin, and that those people... Um, who, for whom that's their struggle, they are fully included as brothers and sisters in the family of God without reservation, right? Um, but it is important when you're engaging with people to determine, just like we've done throughout this class all along, um, wh- where is this person getting their source of authority? So what assumption is being made um, that that's the basis for accepting homosexuality as an acceptable lifestyle? For example, um, is it social pressure? which is, frankly, a lot of the, like, you know, the, the legalization of, of same-sex marriage in this country happened, and immediately the vast majority of the nation changed their social media profile avatar to what? A, a rainbow-colored, whatever, a rainbow-colored flag or rainbow-colored, you know, uh, kind of thing that, that they put over the picture. There's an enormous amount of social pressure to, hey, this is the way we're going, so you need to conform. Like, at all costs, conform. Um, to this. So there's a ton of social pressure, especially for people who are not really ultimately thinking very critically about this issue. They're just riding the wave of social pressure. Um, I saw a a debate on this. Um, The guy that was giving the the Christian position actually did a really good job. Of course, I'm biased, obviously, but um, I thought he did a good job. And and, uh, um, the the proponent of the same-sex marriage um, issue used a lot of emotional language. She first... um, uh, uh, called them names, and then she used a lot of emotional language around you're you're bigoted, you know you're you want uh, you're against love. And when she finished talking, she didn't really make any kind of substantive, reasonable argument at all. She just used a lot of emotive language. And when she finished talking, guess what? The crowd did. They exploded in applause, right? And I mean, you're you're sitting there going, wow. I mean, but I'm just telling you, like, this is this, you guys know this, I don't have to lecture you on it. There's a massive amount of social um, pressure that is informing what people believe. It's the basis for their authority is, well, culture's going that way, so there we go. Um, don't know why, can't rationalize it, don't have any good arguments for that, but there goes the wave, I'm riding the wave. Um, a lot of them have, uh, you know, their personal experience with a friend or a family member, maybe it's their own personal experience of... Um, homosexuality, um, or they may just believe like, hey, um, Scripture's teaching on this is, is antiquated. Like, you're, you're reading from a book that was written 2,000 years ago. Why should I believe it? Um, that kind of thing. So, but I do want to camp out on number four um, <clears throat> for the next 10 minutes or so, and then I'll kind of wrap up before we do Q&A, um, which, by the way, if you haven't been here in the past, um, the last 30 minutes, so you're in about 20 minutes or so, um, uh, three other guys are going to come up here and join me, and we'll do uh, Q&A time. You can ask whatever you want. On, on as long as it pertains to this issue. I mean, if you ask about the problem of evil, we'll probably, you know, skip your question to somebody that has a question that's relevant to what we're talking about. Um, but, but so if, you're, if you have a question or you, you've been tempted to be like, hey, what do you mean by that? Then just write that down, and then there's a red microphone over here. You can come 
ask during that time. So just um, prep yourself. Prep yourself. <clears throat> anyway. Um, so what does Scripture say about it? What is, so, which I think as Christians, we have to, um, if we're thinking rightly, then we have to say, well, um, I believe there's a God, and I think there's really good reasons for that. There's moral reasons for that. There's ontological reasons for that. There's, um, um, yeah, there's all sorts of reasons for um, the existence of God. <clears throat> and so if God does exist and is the most powerful being in the universe and has actually created us, then I think it follows that, he, that his opinion on something should be paid attention to. We ought to listen to him, right? Um, if, if he says, hey I've, hey, I've got an opinion about that, right? Then we probably ought to be like, huh, um, what is it? <clears throat> so he tells us. Um, so bullet point number one, the Old Testament establishes the natural created order as the unique relationship between a man and a woman who come together as a husband and wife to be a father and mother to any children their union may produce. I've already talked about that, Genesis 1 and 2. The second point is when, when Yahweh passes the moral law, he, you know, um, there's debate about this, about the distinctions of the law, but um, for, for argument's sake tonight, um, I'm going to make a distinction between the ceremonial law and uh, the moral law and what's the third one I'm missing? Ceremonial, civil. Yeah, thank you. She's in the residency. She probably has already covered that. Um, the ceremonial, the civil, and the moral. So the ceremonial is like Leviticus. Um, how do you do animal sacrifice? How do you sacrifice in, in, in the, this uh, worship of Yahweh? The civil law um, has to do with the law that like you and I think about. How do you interact with one another um, on, on a daily basis? Um, <clears throat> what are the codes um, for uh, behaving rightly in a civil society? And then the moral law is um, uh, how should you act? Uh, laws that govern marriage, sexuality, um, uh, et, et cetera. So the moral law states <clears throat> that homosexuality is sin. This is, the, this is the passage in Leviticus that a lot of proponents of the same-sex marriage you know, camp point to to say, yeah, the only place it talks about it is in Leviticus, <clears throat> excuse me, in Leviticus 18 and 20, and that's couched in a bunch of other language about how you shouldn't mix garments and you know, that menstru- menstruating women should you know, um, separate themselves from everybody else. And a lot of... And so what they're doing is they're saying is they're grouping the moral law in with the civil and ceremonial, and they're saying, look, see, there's no distinction between these, and so we should just um, kind of, because the other ones are clearly um, ridiculous, then toss the whole thing out. Um, that's kind of the way the argument goes. Um, but um, typically, and this is when you, you, know, when you do a, a solid biblical hermeneutic or met- methodology for studying Scripture, then point number three is really important. The New Testament upholds what's stated in the Old Testament. So now it's not just the Old Testament saying it. It's now the New Testament stating it. Um, and the New Testament upholds the moral law. It clearly states that homosexuality is sin in Romans 1, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1, Galatians 5, Colossians 3, and Acts 15. Right? Um, like, there's really... Um, it's, it's difficult to get around uh, that. People try, and, and we can talk about some of their arguments. But um, Then... Jesus affirms it, right? Which a lot of times, in fact, I saw this one time, there's this pamphlet that said, Jesus is teaching on same-sex marriage. And um, it's this pamphlet, and you open the pamphlet up, and what do you think is inside? It's blank, right? Which the implication is, Jesus didn't say anything about this, right? Which, which the, I think what they're implying is, because he didn't say anything about it, then, then his opinion of it is positive, 
right? Um, which is, that's all kinds of, there's all kinds of logical fallacies in that. Um, the least of which is, not the least of which is an argument from silence, which never holds any water. Um, but I don't think that Jesus is even silent on it. I think he affirmed the created order in Matthew chapter 19. But then he, but then he explicitly prohibits sexual immorality in two different places, of which um, the Greek word there is porneia, and of which porn, uh, the subcategory of porneia, and when used elsewhere, definitely one of the subcategories in deviant sexual behavior is homosexuality. And so when Jesus uses the word porneia, um, I think for, for anybody in that context, the, the fact that homosexuality was a subcategory of this broader category is implied and assumed, right? Um, it's also interesting, too, where for the people who hold that view of that Jesus said nothing about it. He also didn't say anything about incest. He also didn't say anything about uh, He never once says anything about idolatry. Do you know that? Right? But nobody's thinking that he has positive attitudes about these things. So um, there's just a couple of things. So we have the moral law. And we, have, we have the created order, the moral law, the New Testament, Jesus. <laughs> right? Those are four pretty strong pillars um, to base uh, an, interpretive, uh, an interpretation on. And so the last point is, in a biblical hermeneutic, um, if the created order, the moral law, the Old Testament, and Jesus uphold these things, then we consider it a universal truth. Right? And a universal truth is, are those truths that, that can be broadly applied in all time, places, cultures, languages, etc. They cross Those universal truths cross the boundaries um, that, would, that would typically constrict um, other interpretations of the law, like the ceremonial law of ancient Israel, is no longer applicable, right? Uh, not the least of which reason is because Jesus fulfilled it, right? So sacrificing to Yahweh is, is a, in, the, in, in a Christian worldview is offensive because Christ was the sacrifice. Um, it's no longer necessary. Okay, so that's, that's, I mean, I don't know any other way to make that more clear. That's what Scripture teaches about it, uh, about homosexuality. The fifthly is, is this idea of identity, and, and, and that's just establishing the fact that those who are in Christ are no longer identified by their sin. Referring to somebody as a gay Christian is as awkward as calling someone an alcoholic Christian or a gossiping Christian, right? Um, if one is in Christ, he is now identified solely as a child of God, um, 2 Corinthians five seventeen and 21, and is therefore being transformed into the image of Christ, right? That is, this is such a crucial element. I'll get to more of it here in a minute. Um, then lastly, um, choice. Uh, inevitably, the person will say something to the effect of homosexuals are born gay, they don't have a choice. Um, and, and uh, you know, the jury's out on, on whether that's actually true or not. I mean, I, I did say there's no biological evidence because there's not that genetics has anything to do with homosexuality. Um, however, it is clear that some people are born with a predisposition to homosexuality just as alcoholics are predisposed to alcohol or addicts are predisposed to their drug of choice, substance, sex, sex anger, etc., um, we're all affected by our sin nature. It's deeply ingrained in who we are, right? Um, so um, I would tell someone who's, who, who, whose proclivity is toward homosexuality as an expression of their sin nature, the same thing I would tell someone whose proclivity of, of their sin nature is toward anger, right? Is that um, you need Christ and he will transform you right? in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so... Um, it's, what, what's not acceptable is, is just uh, simply embracing your sin and then in some way justifying the fact that you would believe that God is now celebrating you in your sin. We'll also get to that in a minute. 
Um, change is possible for those who are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Something Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, in one of these passages where he says these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and then, and then um, he mentions homosexuality, which is the clearest term for homosexuality. Um, uh, he actually, that term literally means men um, who are attracted and sleep with other men, um, and, and uh, women is implied um, in that. Um, and then Paul says, um, that is what some of you, what? That's what some of you were. You were that. And, and, and uh, he goes on to say, but you're not that anymore, right? Um, Christ has died to forgive that in you, and now through the power of the Holy Spirit, he is, he is transforming it out of you, right? You're becoming, um, you are a new creation, and he is um, truly um, changing you. Every once in a while you hear this idea of, of, of the same-sex marriage as, as kind of the new civil rights. Um, uh, Ravi Zacharias gave a really solid um, response on this, and so I just put it there. So this is from Ravi Zacharias. He said, point one, <coughs> regarding race, race is sacred. You cannot take um, race um, away from people. Um, And so he says we're against racism because it's it's an abuse of something sacred. And in the same way, um, sexuality is sacred. Um, The the way that human beings were created and the purpose for which our sexuality was created um, is a sacred thing. And so um, we're against same-sex marriage because it's an abuse of something sacred. So the question for the people is, is, how do you treat race as sacred, but sexuality, how do you desacralize sexuality? Why? Why the distinction? Right? I think it's a good question. All right, hopefully that, um, and I would encourage you guys obviously to hold on to that. Um, if you need an electronic copy, Sylvia, maybe we can email um, that out to the class, maybe with the survey um, when we email that out. Bam, boom. See, Sylvia's ahead of me. She's like the ninja back there. Um, uh, so, um, just about uh, six or seven minutes here to kind of tie this together, and then guys will come up and we can answer your questions. But how did we get here? How did we get to um, the legalization of uh, same-sex marriage and the broad acceptance of this uh, of this lifestyle as as something to be celebrated? Well, I think we have to start with um, well, not start because um, not all this is in a vacuum. I mean, even even Darwin had pre- predecessors go before him. He he wasn't thinking in a vacuum either. But I think for, for uh, uh, the sake of argument, um, we'll, we'll just start with him. So he wrote on the origin of the species, and basically what he argued in the origin of the species is naturalism, the fact that all there is is nature, that nature can be explained apart from God, and that apart from God, there's no necessity to have any kind of moral absolute. So the, um, he, he established this, this uh, not only naturalism, and part of naturalism, that probably the biggest implication for naturalism is the absence of God, and along with the absence of God, the absence of any kind of moral absolute. So the moral absolute is no longer required. There's, it's no longer required for you to think that sexual behavior outside of the created order is actually deviant. It's just, it, it just is what it is. So then Sigmund Freud came along, the father of psychoanalysis, and he argued that sexual restraint was directly tied to neurosis. So he would say, if you do, if you adhere to the restraints of sexuality within the broader community to protect the integrity of the community and to give children a stable environment whereby society can continue to healthily propagate itself, um, if if you obey those restraints that you would have on yourself, then that actually makes you crazy. So stop. 
Like throw restraint to the wind. Drop it. Drop all sexual restraint and just act however you feel like acting. That's, and what he would argue is that's the healthiest thing for you. Along comes a guy named Alfred Kinsey. He does the Kinsey Reports. Um, basically what he did, he championed sexual experimentation. Um, he, if, 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 it, if you could dream it up, he tried it, right? Um, from heterosexuality to, um, to homosexuality and to everything in between. Um, <clears throat> he was definitely, the, uh, a lot of people consider him the forerunner of the sexual revolution. So you had, you had the, the, drop, the dropping of, of moral absolutes, and then not only that, this, this wind of change that was saying, actually, moral restraint in sexuality is actually a bad thing. And then you had Kinsey, who's like acting out of, uh, of, of a sexual experimentation that has no moral restraints. Um, and then, and this is really significant, a lot of people don't talk about this, but um, I think it's a huge point, is you had no-fault divorce. Um, starting in 1970, is actually signed in 69, but it went into in effect uh, January 1st, 1970. Was, uh, guess, guess who signed it into law? <laughs> right, Our boy Ronald Reagan um, in California signed this into law. And, and California became the first no-fault divorce state. And just recently, five years ago, the last state to be a no-fault di- uh, divorce state in the U.S. was New York. Right? So basically what a no-fault divorce says is that divorce no longer required evidence showing a breach of the marital contract. Right? So you could come in and out of marriage as you pleased. Right? So-and-so, I, don't, I was married to her. I, did, I don't really like her anymore, so I'm going to divorce you. That's literally all it took. And guess what? And I have to say this, because the church, while all of this was going on, guess what the church was doing? Nothing. <laughs> right? We were not effectively practicing church discipline with the people um, that, that were a part of our local bodies. Pastors were allowing people to get divorced and would just kind of either sweep it under the rug because it was taboo, you know, still taboo, or, or they were just too lazy or inept to actually address people's issues, right? We did nothing about it. We did not guard what God considered sacred and holy and, and said, this is the way that I want you to go. If you want to, to live in the way that is, that is going to be a blessing and, and the best thing for society at large, then you need to live like this. And the church basically said, eh, whatever. Um, and we were lazy. So, um, I, I mean, uh, you know, the, the church is the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. And, and largely when it came, came to this, I mean, you know, people would get divorced and we would be like, okay, well, sorry, it didn't work out. Try, try harder next time. You know, oh, well, sorry, that, that one didn't work out. I'm, you know, I'm sorry. I mean, that's the, probably the best response we had. It's ridiculous. So what ended up happening from all of this was the seismic paradigm shift away from a metaphysical identity whereby someone identified themselves by the broader questions about, man, um, why was I created? How do I, what does my existence mean in the universe? Who is God? How do I interact with God? These are the questions that typically identified from, from the ancients on all the way up until 1960, right? Um, these, uh, these were the types of identifying questions that we identified ourselves by. And now we've had this massive shift away from a metaphysical identity toward a sexual identity. You have become, and our, according to our society, you have become your sexual orientation. If you don't believe me, attack any part of any, or, or, or not even attack, just, just like bring up an objection to somebody's work, somebody's friends, um, somebody's belief about God, and people are going to be like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, you may get into an argument, but if you touch on their sexual orientation, I mean, the gloves immediately come off. 
and you are in a fight, right? I mean, and th- that's why the, the, um, the, there's, there's been such a wave of emotion on this um, because at the very center of, of our identity as, um, as, as, as people is our sexuality. That's why for, you know, uh, people did see this as um, a new civil rights movement because it was directly tied um, to an innate part of who they are. Um, that it's that they're saying no. Um, a, a vote to recognize same-sex marriage is a vote to recognize me. That's that's the the feel that um, ended up taking place. So I want to talk a little bit um, <clears throat> about gay. You, you, sometimes you'll hear the word term gay marriage, and sometimes you'll hear the the term same-sex marriage. I'm actually talking about same-sex marriage, where two people of the same sex come together and attempt to get married. Um, gay marriage actually is not problematic at all um, because people who are gay can s- still be married. Right? No, there's no discriminatory language around um, a gay person be- uh, entering into a marriage contract. It just that, that gay person would have to enter into a marriage contract with someone of the opposite sex because that's what marriage is. Right? So there really is no such... I mean, we would say gay marriage is marriage, like, but... Um, as long as the gay person is married to someone of the opposite sex. However, if you have two same-sex individuals who are both homosexual, um, then um, that, that's a, something totally different. Um, what, what we've done is we've attempted to equate two fundamentally different relationships. As I hopefully have made clear tonight, um, there is no other relationship in existence that even, that even comes close to... Um, the, man and a, the, the unique relationship of a man and a woman coming together as a husband, and a complementary coming together as image bearers of God, um, as husband and wife, and then, and then being a father and a mother to um, any children that their union may produce. So if we're saying that same-sex marriage, um, or, or if we're saying that, that there is such a thing as same-sex marriage, then fundamentally you've redefined what marriage is because it is impossible for same-sex couples to live up to the standard of the natural order, the natural created order. So if you're going to call same-sex marriage marriage, oh, I mean, okay, but you need to find another word for this relationship because it's totally different, all right? And, and accord, according to you know, the, the health of the society, you also need to incentivize this relationship because we need babies, <laughs> right? Um, we need, we need complementary fathers and mothers raising babies um, and, and, and to do so under um, the, the care and instruction of God. Um, so, so there's a difference between recognizing um, the natural order of things and then attempting to establish something that naturally does not exist, um, which means... If that's what we're doing, then marriage fundamentally has lost its meaning. Um, which is why I'm like, well, if we've done that, I'd, well, um, it's lost its meaning in the sense that you, you're now calling an apple an orange. Um, and so let's find another word um, for apple that can accurately describe what it is. Okay? Um, that no amount of calling, uh, no amount of treating an apple like an orange is going to change the apple into an orange. Right, you can't do it. Um, yeah. So, viability and goodness. This this has always struck me, just as somebody who's curious about um, some of the implications of this. If those, if something is inherently or universally good, um, then by definition, 
it must be good across the board. If something is good, you, then it needs to be able to stand by itself. It needs to be good in this situation and good in this situation and good in this situation. It's, 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 it's universally good. So we would say that love is a universal good, right? Um, it, and love can stand alone. It stands by itself. Um, but, but I've always thought the implication of this is interesting because if same-sex marriage is good, if, if it is something that, that uh, is inherently good for society, then, um, then it needs to be able to stand alone. And if, and if it were to be applied across the board, then the result would be what? The eradication of the human race in one generation. All right? Uh, that, that's, that's not assuming we have artificial means of, of procreation. I'm talking about just the natural order of things. If you apply same-sex marriage across the board um, if, to where all humans are um, involved in same-sex marriage relationships, then um, what you have is the eradication of the human race. And my question is, well, how is, it, how is, how is that good? That's not, that's not viable, right? And so I think that it naturally, even just out of sheer observation, we can say that um, the, the marriage as God created it and intended it in the natural created order is original, and same-sex marriage, by definition, is deviant or a perversion of something that's original. Um, by definition, it is. Um, let me end with this. Um, Genesis 1 and Romans 1. So in Genesis 1, you have God. God creates. God creates um, the ground. He creates us out of the ground. He says it's not good for Adam to accomplish what I've given him by himself, so I'm going to give him a suitable helper, and they're going to fill the earth, subdue it, rule over it, um, and, and, and be my under-rulers. I am the king. They are my representatives to, to bear my image to the world and rule over the world and, and fill the earth with other image bearers um, so that the glory of God permeates um, the, the whole world. And, and then Romans 1, um, Paul's argument um, is, that, is that people have, have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness um, and, have, and have traded um, their, their worship of the Creator for the creation Right? And so what, what you have Paul do in Romans 1 is he inverts it. Um, he, he shows us this is what life looks like when, you're, when, you're, uh, when Genesis 1 and 2 is turned upside down. Right? Then the creation becomes the creator. The, the people who are living life the way that they want, however they want to, um, become their own gods uh, um, and elevate themselves. Um, they, they, they elevate self, they, they remove God as Darwin did, as, as Nietzsche did, as, as some of these you know, uh, um, other thinkers did have, that have kind of paved the way for, for the self-expression of our society to do whatever it wants. And so you have the removal of God and the exaltation of self, and as a result of the exaltation of self, the exaltation of the supremacy of sexuality. Our sexuality has, has become, frankly, God. And when sexuality becomes God, then you don't challenge it, and whatever deviant way it goes, you get behind it, and you worship it, right? And, and I, I think that we're seeing that. I think we're seeing that. Um, uh, and, and, and ultimately, I would say this. Look, um, God has created us for a purpose, and if you reject that purpose, if we as a people reject that purpose, then it will not go well with us. Right? I don't care how much you whitewash it. I don't care how much perfume you spray on it. I don't care any of that stuff. 
If God says, I created it like this, it can only work this way. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like there's another way it can work, so just keep trying. It only works this way. And, and so um, regardless of how many times we try to fit a round peg in a square hole, it just doesn't, it's not going to work. Um, not only is it not going to work, but the pervasiveness of it and, and, and spreading and us, frankly, giving God the middle finger on this issue um, you know, uh, ultimately, like, like chapter 2 in Romans says, where it just says, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Um, and we can couch it in politically correct language and do all that stuff, but at the end of the day, um, crap still smells like crap. And you can't cover it with whipped cream, you know. Then you got crap with whipped cream on it, you know. Um, it's not very appetizing. So uh, David Larson is... Uh, Actually, I don't know anybody at Watermark that knows more about Genesis 1 and 2 than David Larson. So come up here, dude, and uh, you'll, that'll be helpful. <clears throat> then Mark Rose, who, who taught on the historicity of the resurrection and was also on our panel last week. And we've also got a staff member, uh, Leonard Bagnoff. Um, come on up, brother. Leonard just recently joined staff, um, what, a month ago? Whoa! So he's definitely an expert. Um, but... Uh, yeah, there's only one mic, guys, so we'll have to trade off. But we're going to transition now to um, kind of the Q&A. Um, Q&A. So if you have questions, which I'm sure I'm hoping you do, um, then shoot them at us. Uh, tell us your name and, and your question. Yeah, I'm, I'm Jim Ewer, and a few weeks ago you had a, uh, a pictorial with the, the center of the pictorial had the fundamental tenets of Christianity in yep, it yep. and said, you know, if you believe this, then you're a Christian. Where do you feel this issue falls in that, in that circle? This, I believe the second ring was things like uh, free will versus yep. predestination. Yeah, yeah, yep. Do you feel this fits in the center or is it? No, absolutely ring? not. Yeah. No, no, it's um, this is not something. I mean, I, 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 have, I have Christian brothers and sisters both. Who, who are uh, openly gay, and actually well, one of my uh, Christian brothers is married to another man um, and openly celebrates that. I think he's wrong. I think he's in rebellion against God. I think he's, he's living a, a sinful life. Um, but I also believe that he's Christian. Um, um, I think he's, he's very deceived and wrong um, on, on his outlook on stuff. I would, I would put it, so the second tier um, of, of things are things that I would say that we would break fellowship with people over. Um, and so it's, it's kind of like, hey, I believe you're my brother in Christ, um, but we're so fun, we see things so fundamentally different um, about this issue that, that I, I believe it's, it's not only um, wise for me, but it's also my duty um, not to um, fellowship with you. Um, as, you know, like John says, someone fellowships light with darkness, right? Um, Paul says pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians 5 too, um, he talks about issues like this where, you know, there's a man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law, I believe, and the guy's unrepentant, and he's like, hey, um, give him over to Satan, right? Um, so that um, through that type of church discipline, um, his flesh might be mortified. So I would put it in the second ring. Okay, I um, just have one other question. Yeah, do, before I move on, do you guys have anything else to add to that? All right, sweet. Well, you were talking about the definition of marriage, and I was just wondering what your thoughts are if, if they can use the term gay marriage if we couldn't use the term holy marriage as an alternative. Y'all want to answer that? or All right, well, I'll keep talking. 
Okay, yeah, so um, actually this, was a, uh, this is a position, I think it's actually a, a good position. C.S. Lewis held to this position where he just, uh, Lewis's position was, hey, um, there should be uh, a secular marriage that the government recognizes and there should be holy marriage or sacred marriage that the church recognizes and there should be a distinct difference between those two so that someone knows, well, you're married by the state and you're married by the church. Um, I think there's some validity to that. I mean, I think across the board, whatever's true is true. So the state may choose to have a deviant definition of marriage, which they're entitled to. I mean, we're, you know, uh, we're entitled to, to totally drive ourselves into the ground if we want. It's just not going to go very well um, that way. So um, it's definitely an option. You guys want to add anything? I, I, yeah, the only thing I would add is that the, the, the question is, is kind of on the, the rhetoric of communication. Um, the, 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 the marriage, from a Christian perspective, is, is a man and woman. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so how we, living in our culture, want to distinguish that we're different and we have a different definition, maybe, uh, you know, maybe an adjective like holy, like you're saying, mm-hmm. or, or, mm-hmm. or maybe just sticking with the same no marriage. But that, that's more on the art and rhetoric of dialogue with your neighbor than on, on a truth issue. Yeah. But that being said, I do, think that, I do think the way that we carry ourselves in our marriages is extremely important because it's, it's the salt of the earth, right? Um, and if the salt has lost its saltiness, you know, what good is it? So... Um, the way that we live our lives in, 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 in culture, the way, we love our, the way we love our wives, the way we raise our children, the way we, it should be a city on a hill. It should, people should, we should be living our lives in such a way that the lost world sits up and takes notice, right? All right. Go ahead. Ladies first. <laughs> What's your name? Uh, my name's Carolyn Sanchez. Um, do you guys have any good tips or ways of explaining... Um, same-sex marriage or same-sex couples and maybe, like, the sin part of it to young children. So maybe two, three, four, five, six. You know, how you, especially if it's somebody, like, at school, their friend or their friend's parents. Um, you know, how, how you can kind of portray that, you know, we love those people, but, um, you know, that kind of the sin behind it and why that's maybe not, a, you know, not a good thing. I can. Uh, I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old, so I get to have these fun conversations. And um, uh, I think um, being straightforward in an age-appropriate way, just explaining um, what they believe um, to be true. You know, at whatever age. You know, I mean, because from five to seven, there's a big difference in level of comprehension. Um, uh, uh, I would, I would let it be guided by their questions and make sure to ask them some clarifying questions. Because sometimes a, a little kid will say one thing, and we'll put a whole lot of mm-hmm. information into that statement that they don't, they don't have any <laughs> clue. You know, um, uh, So I, I kind of talk through it with, with my kids in the same way that I talk through when they come and say, I asked Jesus into my heart. Well, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. What does that, what does that look like? How do you, you know, and, 
Um, so I'm, I'm trying to think of specific conversations because I've certainly talked to my son about this. He asks lots of, he's the why kid. And um, uh, I, I also, I teach ninth graders and 12th graders at a local Christian high school. I taught in public school as well. But um, uh, you have to maybe be a little more blunt than your, your parenting intuition might be like, oh, I would prefer to protect them from this. But just, just be willing to, um, in every aspect of life, like I'll explain what Hindu people believe. I'll explain that there are people who believe that there is no God. And so it fits in that same category of explanation. There are people who believe that they can, um, uh, that it's not about a mom and a dad like we have, but it's, you can have two dads or two moms. But we believe that that's not how God made it to be, that he wanted it to be where there was a mom and a dad. So um, some of those, just that very basic terminology, if you can start feeding that, then that will, I always think of it as you're just trying to lay a foundation for them to continue the conversation um, whenever I engage with, with my little kids. You want anything to that? I think the only thing I would add to that is um, uh, kids are, they're, they're still innocent. And so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, because there is a dad and a dad at the school, like say, okay, I, would, I, I agree with Mark, wait for them to ask. Um, and then as appropriate to answer the question, of course. But um, unfortunately, we're going to get that question sooner mm-hmm. than later mm-hmm. and to be prepared for it. And again, to Mark's, point is uh it, it, to 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 tell them what we believe as as that foundational standpoint for them to go okay um you know because we're gonna have to start talking about right and wrong but um they uh, they don't know all the intricacies of all of that and so i think what we're starting to do is just to just to say what's the difference between boys and girls and, and starting there, and then all that stuff will come, unfortunately. But um, yeah, just dr- driven by their com- by their questions. Yep. Name's Ryan Talbot. Um, I have a question about the uh, Genesis two and the implications. Um, so, man and woman come together and bear God's image more so than either of them by themselves. And uh, man's not complete without woman, and, and vice versa, I guess, by implication. Um, and uh, being in a singles community group, someone comes and says, hey, I, I really need to get married. Or I, I've heard married couples maybe put their spouse on a pedestal. And uh, and so kind of the standard language to deal with that is, no, you don't need a partner. You just need Jesus. You just need Jesus. And I've heard that a lot around here. Is that less than biblical? Because God's directly saying, hey, it's not good for you to be alone. You need someone else. And it's not about homosexuality, but what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it's less than missional. Um, the the human mission. Um, it, that's why human the, the humans exist. God envisioned them. God created them with with a, with a purpose in mind, and and part of that purpose is Genesis one. Um, you, you referenced Genesis too, um, as well. Um, so, yeah, I, I think yes, everybody needs Jesus. That, that, that's a given. Uh, 
Um, but, it, but the question goes be the answer to the question goes beyond that. It goes to well, but but now that you know Jesus, or if you do come to know Jesus, then what? Um, it, it goes to the to the issue of purpose in life, and 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 for me, that goes to that's a missional question. Um, the mission, the, the your existence, um, should should um, find its 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 answer in uh, God's mission in general, and and so um, yeah, I think I think there's more to it than just they need to know Jesus. Yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you used the word general because um, I mean obviously we're not talking about. That, that we're, not, we're not saying that, that single people don't bear the image of God. I mean, Jesus, <laughs> right, Paul, I mean, um, and, and, and so it's, um, I do think that Scripture says that, um, that God has called some people, um, that, that he has given them another specific mission, um, aside from their, the, the broader general mission of, of, uh, of, of procreation and discipleship in the family home, um, but but uh, but those those two things it's not like you have like um one or the other it's not like uh, it's not like you say well these people are image bearers and not these or these people are image bearers are not these what i am saying is under god's created order and and the specific uh creation mandate that he gave us in genesis 1 um is that um essential to that mission is man and woman come together as husband and wife to be a father and mother to any children their union produces um, that is generally the the mission that God has given us, and obviously, as it plays itself out um, in the world, and God's redemptive purpose for the world in redeeming marriage is for Jesus to be introduced into the equation, for the Holy Spirit to transform people, and actually give people the ability to live the type of marriage that is a city on a hill, that is the salt of the earth, that is the light of the world, right? Um, so that I've long believed, and I've been in, I've, I've discipled, you know, a bunch of different dudes. Um, and I'm convinced that the greatest discipleship relationship I'll ever have are, is the discipleship relations I have in my home with my wife and with my sons. Um, I mean, I, this sounds crass, but I think the best way to make disciples is to breed them. You know, I mean, uh, frankly, frankly, too, you, you play this, pray this, play this out broadly. Muslims have Muslims are having babies like it's going out of style, right? And Christians are sitting around flipping their thumbs, going, "Well, maybe I'll get married when I'm 40." You know. That has implications. So to some single people who are twiddling their thumbs, I would tell you, find somebody and get married, right? I mean, I know that sounds like, oh, you know, but we've, we've also elevated this whole idea of the, of the centrality of the emotional connection in a marriage relationship. And, and frankly, I think the history has shown us that's actually like, you know, um, it's definitely part of it. That's the husband and wife coming together, but the marriage relationship is so much more than that. And I would say that broadly speaking, the vast majority of people should be married and should be having children and should be discipling those children to love Jesus um, and, and to be a light in the world. Um, and in some sense, I would say, not again, not all, so, I'm not, so, so I clarify, um, not saying this to everybody, but some people are missing the mission that God has for them because they're not pursuing marriage. So food for thought. I, think, I don't know. Um, I might... You know, not probably disagree a little bit, maybe in, in a certain sense, and maybe draw an extra distinction. Like that, I, I think some people, especially in Western culture, because of the individualistic nature of society and these kind of things, a lot of people are missing out on marriage because they're self-centered. Right. 
and because they're not willing to make the sacrifices. And so for those people, I would say, yeah, you should be focused on that and not focused on yourself. So that's why they're putting off, because they want to make sure their career is in the right spot, Mm -hmm. and they want to make sure that they've got financial security. And and so they're they're basing their decision off self-centered desires. But at the same time, I I think, uh, to me, when I I look in the New Testament, um, you you see at the same time, Jesus is talking about, he says, man, some men were born eunuchs. Mm Right? Some men without the ability to procreate. Right, Some people have been made eunuchs by men, because that would happen, um, like other human beings. Right, um, And then some people make themselves eunuchs for the, for the kingdom of God. Yep. Um, and so, so to draw a distinction between people who are choosing to do this, uh, to, to be single for the exact same reason that Paul was single, which is I want to free up as much of my time as possible so that I can do good work for the kingdom of God. I think that is something that Christ honored and that Paul honored, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, and, and brought forth the benefits. Like Paul took concerted effort to explain that that was a sacrifice to him because he compared himself to the other apostles. He's like, I'm the only one that's not married. Um, but I do it so that I can do so much more. Um, and so it's about, it's about really helping drive home the distinction between that, yep. in my opinion. That, yeah, and that, that I, I would think say, because of the urgency of it. Yeah, and Mark, I would say that, that you weren't disagreeing at all. That's exactly what I was saying. Uh, so. I, I, w- I would say, too, that your, in Genesis 1, the word Adam, it, which was translated up here, mankind, let's... let's, let's Let's rephrase that because that's an English word. Let's let's call it humankind. Um, it, the passage itself defines Adam as male and female. Mm-hmm, right. That's the image of God. Mm-hmm. N- now it gets bifurcated and subdivided, uh, in, you know, later in the canon. But but the opening statement of the Bible that should frame our perspective on a whole bunch of issues, uh, this one included, um, de- defi- defines Adam male and female. Mm-hmm. And then the exception to the rule, which we're, we're talking about, well, what about in the New Testament, the celibates for Christ? That, that, that's the exception. Mm-hmm. That doesn't undermine the, the overall context or mission, in my that's opinion. Right. Yep. So. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Travis Fitzgerald, and I was just wondering if you guys could comment on um, kind of the naturalist uh, argument, because I feel like I've read, um, and at the risk of trotting out Richard Dawkins, but I feel like I've heard him uh, be in favor of gay rights and same-sex marriage. Um, and I was wondering if, if that, if, to me, that doesn't seem really to line up right, because if you if you hold to a naturalist point of view, but yet yeah, you're a, support, a supporter of gay rights and same-sex marriage, that doesn't really seem to be doing the whole selfish gene theory a whole lot of good, because if, if we really are just promoting our biological DNA to the next you know, generation... Uh, I was wondering if, if there's if, if there's any kind of ar- argument that you know I mean, that you could use to engage someone with who might be uh, you know someone who is a naturalist but yet is very passionate about you know gay rights and same sex marriage. Yep. I mean, my first thought is you'd have to ask Richard Dawkins that. I mean, I, th- I think the question you asked is 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 totally appropriate for him. Um, I, I'd I'd be interested to hear his explanation. I don't, have y'all heard him write anything or say anything on that? Um, at, that, that's one of the things that I think is 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 not consistent um, because you have uh, you have Darwin in the establishment of naturalism in this post enlightenment scientific era, 
and, and people who champion uh, you know, natural selection, um, whereby at the very bottom of the totem pole for natural selection is our homosexual relationships because they eradicate themselves. They're, you know, the, the, um, they die and are they're, they're not able to uh, procreate. So it's the end of themselves. Um, and, and so that, from a naturalistic standpoint, it's not viable. However, I think in, in, in understanding the, more com, uh, the complexity um, of, of the situation is that naturalism does not exist in a vacuum. It's also a part of the broader you know, uh, worldview of someone who would um, have, a, has, have as a foundation the aspect of naturalism that is, I am my own being without God. Um, and then on top of that, you have um, Sigmund Freud, <laughs> um, who says, throw off sexual restraint. You have, um, you know, Kinsey, who experiments broadly with sexuality and, and champions this to, to be the forerunner of, of the sexual revolution. And now you have the, the culture. So it's, it's kind of like this weird, um, um, I guess, uh, hybrid of, of the two of I'm going to accept aspects of naturalism that allow me to live my own life because there is no God and, and morals don't matter, um, and, and also champion um, these other um, aspects of, of, of my own sexuality um, and then attempt to change laws to celebrate that. And so it, it ends up being kind of this a la carte worldview deal of I want a little bit of this and a little bit of that. I'm, I'm not sure that... Um, you know, without having read Dawkins's stuff on it, I don't know what he would say, but I don't know if y'all have any other thoughts on that. I, I think, well, let's first say it, uh, atheistic naturalism, because I suppose some some people uh, could be naturalists and 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 hold to God. But let's say atheistic naturalism. They they ba- they basically um, to, to coexist with a postmodern um, and to coexist with. A religious person, whether it be Muslim or Christian, um, the the great common denominator today is tolerance. Um, is that, what now? I'm sorry. Is what now? Tolerance. 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 Yeah. So 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 for that for them to to if I don't believe in a god, I think it's all pure just molecules forming together. Um, there is no right or wrong. Um, so I can I can pretty much do what I want, and then I've got a postmodern saying, well I. I I completely agree, but I think there's actually millions of rights and millions of wrongs, and they all coexist. And the Christian says, "No, I believe in a, I believe in God, and that's the the way to go." And and the Muslim says, "Well, I I I hold to that, but just a different God." So so for us all to not go crazy, um, and and go you know insane, we 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 have the great directive of tolerance. So his comment is completely in line with that. So yeah. I don't know if that's yep. the answer. Yeah, and I think um, if you look um, just a little bit further back in history, whenever um, the secular humanism that Richard Dawkins kind of stands behind a little bit more um, and is, is fading in lots of ways, um, but if you look at like a Brave New World or 1984, um, you can see, and you, and you even see this, um, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard, um, I can't remember her name right now, the woman who helped found Planned Parenthood. Margaret Sanger. Talk, yeah, Sanger, that's it. Um, eugenetics, like, if you look at it, 
see from a from a naturalistic survival of the fittest mm-hmm. one very viable way they could explain this is look our problem is not underpopulation it's overpopulation mm-hmm. is going to mm-hmm. threaten the human race more and particularly overpopulation of uneducated um under you know achieving humanity yep. and so um having less kids is is not necessarily a, a problem for them. Maybe in that way. That just to offer a, another way that maybe yeah. I've seen a naturalist explain that. Yeah, and that's just another example of how of of the melting pot that's stewed together and stirred up that is our society. So go ahead, go ahead, Leonard. These guys are really smart. I think Richard Dawkins probably has a gay cousin or a gay brother, mm-hmm. and so kind of making an excuse for that. And I think that's the crux of this whole thing. Is there's so much emotion around it yep. because somebody Good. knows somebody. Good who is very close to them, and they just don't want them to be in pain. Well, all of us are in pain. Mm-hmm. All of us are mm-hmm. short of the glory of God. And, um, and, so, and I think that's where it all comes to this whole debate on, wh- on, on what we believe. And so um, the, the line is clear, I think, on whether we have a biblical worldview right. or we have a secular worldview. Yeah, and the secular worldview is going to go with, you know, all what all those guys said, you know, and and they'll connect all those dots because those guys are really smart. <laughs> but um, but really, I mean, where's the depth and the depravity of my mm-hmm. soul, mm-hmm. and what am I feeling? Filling that God-shaped void, yep. and so and we just don't want anybody to feel bad. Yep. You know, love yep. wins, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've got you know love winning out there, but people are still you know go ahead, you know legalized marriage, gay marriage, same-sex marriage, but they're still going to have that void in there and that only God can fill and only by the power of his spirit. That's why I love that handout that you guys got tonight. I mean, it is dead on. Um, and only by the power of the spirit That's can right. anybody be changed yep. and have their, their, their mind transformed That's and right. changed uh, to be made whole. Good. Outstanding, man. And I would say, to, to just close our time... Um, the, the, you know, you have you have these uh, the cultural language of of love wins, right? And which which if you haven't learned anything else in this class, right? Challenge the presupposition. What's the presupposition? Is well, what do you mean by love? Right? Because I agree with you, love wins. And and First uh, Corinthians chapter thirteen, which is the chapter on love, says that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Right? And so um, there is a dividing line. There's a dividing line about what God says about the way we should live and about the way that we say we should live. There is a line in the sand. But standing on that line and, and uh, reaching out to people on the other side um, should never be done in any kind of hateful way, um, in any kind of flustered, aggressive way. Um, do not get sucked into the culture war that, that will stir your emotion to feel like that you're championing, championing your position and, and you know, converting people through your rhetoric. Um, I, I think this is a great and appropriate way to end a, a class on apologetics by saying that the greatest apologetic is love. Um, that you can know all the right answers, engage people with all of the right arguments, but these, I mean, Leonard is exactly right. Unless the Holy Spirit engages their heart um, to uh, take off the blinders and show them the truth, um, then it doesn't matter. Um, and, and, and just like Jesus did, um, um, he loved people. Um, he loved people with grace and truth. And so um, 
my prayer for you is that as you've been sitting in here for the last six weeks, that you've been better equipped, not just to be able to engage some of these questions in the public square more effectively, um, but that you've been stirred um, you know, in, inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit um, to pray and to seek to walk not only um, with the truth that is in the person of Jesus Christ, but also um, uh, in, in the manner in which um, he conducted himself. So, um, yeah. Thanks, guys, for um, the, the panel time. And thank you guys for coming. Um, just a few announcements. Sylvia will send you a survey. If you could take, it takes maybe five or ten minutes to complete that. If you'll complete that survey for the class, give us helpful feedback. Please don't say the room was too cold. We know the room is too cold. That's why Sylvia highlighted every week, bring a jacket, you know. Um, but give us helpful, constructive feedback. We'd appreciate it. And the next core class is the evangelism class that starts on October the 22nd. It's going to be awesome. Come join us. Y'all have a great night.